0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Be Uncluttered. I'm Tara Tuttle and with me is Rebecca Mazzino and together we are going to help you on your journey to a life free of clutter.
1: Hi and welcome to this week's episode. We are really excited today because Tara and I are doing an interview together, which I don't think we have ever done before, Tara, but I could not possibly get away with doing this one on my own with Brooke. Tara was not having any of it and she said she was (laughs) going to get up at 2am if she had to, to do this. So we are interviewing the wonderful Brooke McCallery from the Slow Home podcast, who has just released her third book, Care. Brooke is passionate about slow living and living a mindful, intentional life. So she's right up our alley. And so we're really excited to be um, talking to her today. So welcome, Brooke. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to see both of you.
0: So, Brooke, for anyone that doesn't know your backstory, I would love to give them a little bit of insight. So for some people, you know, it's quite tempting to think that someone that lives a slow, simple life has always lived that way. That was a gift that they were ordained with and and that's just the way they live. But your life wasn't always slow and gentle and simplified. Can you paint a bit of a picture for us of what it looked like about six to eight years ago, or even earlier than that, before your life transformed?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's really, just to touch on what you said about the assumptions that, you know, slow living comes easy to some people. It might. I haven't met any, though. (laughs) Um, You know, I need slow living because I don't, operate naturally at a slower pace. Uh, you know, my life, if I go back to when I first became a parent, um, so my kids are 12 and 10 now, when our first baby was born, I was running uh, my own jewelry label. And up until she was born, I was also working full time. My husband worked full time. We had just moved from the city to the blue mountains, uh, you know, and life was really, really full. Um, the day I got home from hospital with with her, I got an email saying uh, I had been accepted to showcase my work at Australian Fashion Week, and it was in six weeks. And I'm like, yeah, I can do that, of course. You know, giving no thought to the fact that my life had changed, you know, completely. I just had this mentality of push through, push through, push through at all costs and gave no thought to my own mental health or my own physical health. And it really took a long time for me to recognize that this success at all cost mentality was costing me, um, you know, my my mental health and physical health. And it wasn't until our second baby was born, uh, you know, almost two years later that I realized where I was at in my head was a really dangerous place. Like I kind of came came around to myself one day staring in the mirror, looking at my reflection and just saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And thank God there was this little voice in the back of my head that was like, you know, I don't think this is what it's like for everyone. <laughs> maybe, mm-hmm. maybe things don't necessarily need to feel this awful. And, you know, I called my husband and I called my mum and they both came home and, you know, sat with me and I was able to go and see my GP and went in to see a psychiatrist almost straight away and was diagnosed, unsurprisingly, looking back now, with severe postnatal depression. And I saw this psychiatrist every week for months. And throughout that process, we started to unpack, like, my the stories I was telling myself about what it looked like to be successful and, you know, the myths that I had bought into of what it looked like to be, you know, a modern a modern mother who was a business owner and who was managing to to keep all the balls in the air and regain her figure and, you know, all the, the crap that we're kind of served. And she really challenged me to start thinking more critically of that stuff. And one day I was complaining about the fact that I could not stop. You know, I'd love to rest. I'd love to enjoy my babies. I'd love to, you know go go to the park and not be on my phone. I'd love to do all these things, uh, but I'm too busy. And she said, well, have you considered doing less? And I was so offended at that <laughs> suggestion. <laughs> like, don't you know how busy and important I am? Uh, mm-hmm. And, like, I wasn't. Nothing that I was doing other than being a mum was important, not in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, this was the the, the mentality I was in. Uh, but it it really got under my skin. So I went home and I ended up Googling how do I simplify my life? And that was how I discovered this whole minimalism movement um, and the simplicity movement and, by extension, the slow living movement. And I, I was reading these stories about people and these blogs that people had written about their own experiences of simplifying and they were saying how much – better life was, not because it was, you know, this, this different version of success necessarily, but because they just gave themselves the gift of space uh, to, you know, stop and to think and to recalibrate and to ask questions that I had never asked myself as an adult, like what do I value and what legacy do I want to leave behind? So, you know, in a very large nutshell, that's sort of how I, I landed in the space that I did.
0: So from knowing your story uh, somewhat, part of the process for you, you started decluttering and that was one of the catalysts for a much bigger change, bigger than just living with less stuff. It became a whole transformation. Can you tell us about a few of the things that changed? Um, I'm assuming then your, your job and your commitment and your energy that you put into that change. Um, I know about, you know, the time that you spent in nature and, and cultivating your backyard, but can you give us a bit of insight into some of that transformation, how things shifted?
2: The the thing that I was most surprised by actually was um, how much it impacted my relationships with my kids and my husband because I had uh, clarity of mind and like buffer, you know. Mm-hmm. I had emotional buffer that I had never, ever, ever had before. Even as a teenager, even as a kid, I was always full to the brim, you know, of ideas and things to do and places to be, and um, you know. So anything that went wrong, any perceived, you know, offense, any time the kids spilt something just before we were going out, whatever, I would kind of explode. I had nowhere to expand into. And that meant that I was just reactive all the time and I was kind of angry a lot of the time. Um, so that was huge for me to just have applied the ideas of simplifying to like our physical stuff, obviously, but also to the way we spent our days. I, I decluttered the business. That was the first thing to go. <laughs> and <laughs> that that made an enormous difference just to, um, you know, my own well-being. Uh, And it was a really gradual process of letting go of of other stuff, expectations, um, you know, of myself and of other people and of what our home should look like and what things we should own by the time we were 30 years old, all that kind of stuff. And it it just gave me a sense of space and a sense of peace that I had never known. Um, You know, and as you say, that led into curiosity, I guess, about what I love doing, you know, spending time outdoors, gardening, bushwalking, um, writing. Again, this is sort of when I started to pick up my pencil and started writing about my own experiences and blogging about it. Uh, and that that was a whole other unexpected journey that, um, that I suppose led me here.
0: There was um, something that you did as part of that when you were trying to work out what your values were. Um, do you want to tell us about about that special thing that you wrote down that kind of um, tapped you into what was actually important and what you wanted to look back on your life and think?
2: Yeah, I um, I wrote my eulogy, essentially, <laughs> which sounds so morbid. It sounds like such a like a grim thing to do. And I was, I think I was like thirty-two or something when I did it. And I hadn't thought about my own death. I mean, most people at thirty-two would not have considered their own death you, unless you, they had, you know, suffered an illness, a terminal illness, or something like that.
0: Yeah. What I think is really funny is that I it's something that I do with all my coaching clients and the reaction from a lot of them is like initially like what are you suggesting? Like, you know, yeah. I'm I'm forty two or I'm thirty five or I'm fifty one. Why am I? And it's like nothing brings more clarity than, you know, looking back. Exactly, exactly. Um, And it
2: was, I mean,
0: when you picture it, and for me, it
2: was part of the process was like picturing who was going to deliver this eulogy and mm -hmm. who they were going to say it to and what I had meant to these people. So it really kind of crystallised everything that's important because, like, the person that you didn't get along with in the schoolyard, they're not going to be at your funeral. Like, they don't care and you don't care. You know, it's that sort of stuff. It's like... Removing the majority of the noise and the bs that that we that we give our energy to and the things that I was spending all my time worrying about they didn 't feature at all in that eulogy, mm-hmm. and that was a huge wake up call I mean my kids del- in my head my kids delivered this eulogy when hopefully they were you know adults with their own families and I was very old when I passed away, but you know it really did offer um, clarity and also like a touchstone or something to refer back to every time I wanted or felt like I needed to make change in my life. Because the changes that I was making, as you guys know, I mean, they're countercultural to simplify, to Mm -hmm. choose a different vision for yourself, a different idea of success. It takes guts to do it. And sometimes you feel really motivated and other times you feel kind of tired. And to have that eulogy to tap back into and say, well, what, what would she have done mm-hmm. to get where I imagined myself being? Because um, that was the other thing. The person that I was reflecting on in that eulogy was not the person that I was as I wrote it. You know, So I recognised that there was a huge misalignment with my own values in terms of what I knew was important and then in how I was living so that was sort of the the catalyst Mm -hmm.
1: so that enabled you to sort of redirect your path so that you were able to head more towards being that person when that time came and less the person that you had sort of fallen into because that's how society had where had the nudged you in that direction Mm -hmm. yeah
2: Yeah, fallen into is exactly right. Like there was no intention in Mm. where I landed. It was like this is what I should be doing at this age and, you know, of course I should be hustling and, of course, we should be extending the house and, of course, of course, of course. At no point did I go, well, what is it that feels like a good use of my time and energy rather than what am I, you know, what am I expending my time and energy for?
0: Yeah, I think we... We learn these measuring sticks. They come from everywhere, but they come from what our parents teach us to measure ourselves against, what our peers, what society, what advertisers, what whatever Media. tell us, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Influences.
0: And I don't know why people maybe here's a business opportunity. I don't know why people don't take you away in your late teens or your early 20s and and give you a course in how to figure out your own measuring stick because it it's I feel like we cobble our version of um, success or happiness against what the world tells us it should be and it should look like and we we take a piece from this and a piece from that but we never seem to measure up we never seem to be quite as good a parent as the best parents or quite as good a cook as the best cooks or quite as you know uh, rich as the wealthiest people and their measuring stick and we end up getting so lost so I think it's it takes some real deep thinking to figure out what your own measuring stick is, what you want it to be. And that process of the eulogy is spot on because you go, Okay, retrospectively, what 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 is my measure of success and how do I know if I've if I've reached it? So I think by being able to tap into that, um, yeah, that clarity is, is huge. So Brooke, then did you my my personality is such that if I decided that I was gonna simplify, if I had that light bulb moment, I'd wanna do it all and I'd wanna do it perfect and I'd <laughs> wanna do it today. Did you have that? Did you go through it?
1: Tara, Tara is is like miss properly. <laughs> it's
0: gotta it's gotta be done the way it's going yep, go. <laughs>
2: So I was reading all of these minimalism blogs, right? And I'm like, okay, this is this is great. I can get behind this, and I am going to be the best minimalist who ever minimalized, and I'm going to do it so quick, and I'm going to change the entire fabric of my family, and they just get to come along with me because they've got no choice, and it's all just gonna be great. So I decided to start with our um, our double garage in the, in the backyard, um, which was quite literally filled with boxes of stuff that we had moved like three years prior um, and had never unpacked and it was to the rafters. So I thought this is going to be easy, you know, like I haven't needed any of this stuff. I'm just going to go through it and, you know, let it go and feel the benefits and I'm going to walk around with like a saintly smile on my face for the rest of my life because I did it. I did it once and I did it right. And you know, I, I coaxed my husband into it one weekend and we went out and we started opening boxes and we made piles, you know, things to keep, things to recycle, things to donate to this charity, things to call, you know, things that we need to call up and find where to donate them. And we just kept adding stuff to the piles and the piles got bigger and bigger until they started to merge into one massive pile and we – kind of turned around and and realised that we were just surrounded by crap and we had no idea what to do with any of (laughs) it. So we looked at each other and we kind of shrugged and walked out of the garage, rolled the roller doors down and left it (laughs) for like a long time. It was just the most awful weight on my shoulders but I couldn't couldn't do it because I tried to do it all at once. (laughs) So, you know... I, I thought, and I did that a number of times, you know, I went back in, I thought maybe it was just a bad day, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I, I never made much headway. And I decided to try flipping the whole process. I'm like, okay, so I went big. What if I go super, super small and do, you know, the junk drawer in the kitchen or the fridge or the medicine cabinet? And I did all of these really, really almost stupidly small things one at a time and I I could do them, you know, they were manageable, they were they were realistic and I could do them in 10 minutes, I could do them in half an hour and I got that sense of um, achievement that I was looking for by doing the garage but never got because it was just too big a job. So that was the way I started in the end, I'd just chunk things down into the most ridiculously small task and then just do that um, and that built my confidence I think a little bit and it also allowed me to feel the positive benefits of, you know, releasing that stuff. And, um, yeah, I think I got further quicker by going small and consistent rather than by trying to do just the one big clean-out every three months or, you know, whenever it was I tried to do the garage. So, yeah, I hear you completely about wanting to be the best at doing all of (laughs) these things. Um, But for me, I found, you know... It, like kindness, I think, and gentleness is also part of the process, and learning how to give yourself those things when you're making these huge changes that can feel really
1: overwhelming and tiring, too. Mm. I think the media has a lot to answer for with that as well. These shows where, you know, a week has gone by and the entire property is transformed and everything's <laughs> yep. perfect and everyone's happy again. And that does put that expectation on on people. That, like, they watch the Home Edit or they watch Marie Kondo. And, like, with the Marie Kondo one, those people in those families took an entire month off to do that project. But that's right. not evident in the show. And you there's no taking an entire month off from everything parenting work all that kind of stuff is completely impossible for a lot of people not to mention then overcoming the emotional obstacles of letting stuff go all of the I might need it some days but that was Arnie Pat's all that kind of stuff that's on top of that again and so I think that although they can be inspiring they can also set these unrealistic standards for us and we kind of get caught up in well that's how it that's how it's meant to work and therefore if I can't do that then I'm failing in in some way or another. Exactly
2: and I think uh you know the the story is do this thing and everything will be fixed and Mm. good and you know um, your problems will go away like unless your problems are literally you know tripping over piles of stuff your problems are still going to be there you know Mm. it just gives you a a new channel or a new avenue for thinking about them. And for me, it's not, that's not the destination. Like the destination is not to have a minimal decluttered tidy home. Like that's not what I'm aiming for. It was all about life, you know, and that's where the eulogy comes back into it. I didn't, Say in my eulogy, her house was clean, and she only owned, you know, three she pairs was of shoes. The best minimalist in the world. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, she was warm, and she she told like rude jokes, and she was always there for people who needed her. And you know, um, she was adventurous. Like I think that, as you say, Rebecca, the 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 focus on that end goal, that aesthetic simplicity, uh, it's fine. Like if that's your taste, go for it. But I just, I really worry when I see people, uh, you know, thinking that that's going to be the golden ticket to, you know, a perfectly happy life. I think it just gives you a little more space in which to do the work that you need to do, Hmm. like the inner work. I feel
0: like it's, it's almost just one of the layers and it's probably one of the ones that's the easiest to peel back because it's very... Hands on, it's focused, you have a pretty specific outcome, but it's that whole thing of when you then have some physical space, you gain a bit of mental space to do the hard thinking and um, that slowing down and simplifying and, you know, trying to cultivate a richer life. That's all the deeper layers. And for a lot of Mm -hmm. people and myself included, I couldn't get to any of that deeper thinking when there was too much stuff because... My eyes couldn't settle and rest anywhere for me to do that deeper thinking. I had to get some of that stuff out the way first, and so I think it's a really, it's a really handy place to start. But it's not—that's not the end goal. That's the first of the many layers. Um, you so, just terrified
1: everybody who thinks <laughs> that they're cluttering, <laughs> They're cluttering their juncture is going to change their life. Sorry, guys. Yeah, better
0: <laughs> tune in. Uh, Next week, <laughs> we'll give you uh, the other 20 layers beyond
2: <laughs> But I do think the, the idea of like inner world and outer world is really important to think about uh, in that context, because like, I have a very distinct memory of sitting in our back room in our old house, the one that I, you know, decluttered, um, and just sitting there for, you know, half an hour, watching the kids play in the backyard or just sitting there with a cup of tea. And that's something I would never, ever, ever have done when I was completely snowed in. And so, like, having that extra 30 minutes a week or whatever it it looks like in which to kind of s- drop into your inner world, I think is really – that might be a helpful way of looking at it because, you know, our inner worlds are really – our inner lives are really neglected in – today's society you know there's always something to do there's always information to consume um you know we always feel like we need to be being productive and none of those things allow us to drop into that inner life and i feel like those you know those conversations i have with myself or those moments of reflection like they can't happen if we're constantly either doing or consuming Mm. um you know so i think that the idea of sort of out of outer calm leads to inner calm is all very nice and neat. But I do think that there is a certain level of truth to it as well in terms of space, you know, space to think.
0: Mm. So for people that want to dig into more of your story, um, you've got some amazing resources. So um, your podcast was hugely successful. In fact, the first episode of your podcast was the first podcast I ever listened to. I put my podcast cherry with your first episode. No way. <laughs> well, course. can I just apologize cuz I'm sure it was terrible. <laughs> no, it was great. I loved it. I was like this, this she sounds like a real human like a normal person on a podcast. That's amazing.
2: <laughs> well, I was at that stage I was so tired of like the pretense, you know, and to to be kind of frank, I was really tired of a lot of um, minimalism writers who had a partner who seemed to do the majority of the like the the work of the emotional labor, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't them. So it's like, yeah, of course I can, you know, I can spend this time minimizing or um, you know writing about it in a very kind of poetic way or uh, whatever it might be, and that's fine. Like that's a very valid experience, but it wasn't my experience, you know, not when I was trying to work and raise the kids and keep the house and, you know, sort some of my own stuff out and be a partner and a sister and a friend and all of that. Um, So that was kind of part of the frustration that led me to start the podcast. So that's, that's cool that you felt that even though I'm sure it was terrible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was great. So for people that want more want to do more of a deep dive into your backstory and the journey you've been on. There's your podcast, there's the blog, Um, following on from the success of those you published, Destination Simple in 2016 and Slow in 2017, which is a beautiful book where you gently nudge your readers towards being more intentional and more mindful and you give them permission to go against the norm, which... um, I think is is essential quite often people need someone to say that that's okay and you kind of light a path for people towards slowing their lives down so there's I will have links to all of that in the show notes for people that want to dig into that more so now Beck is going to chat to you Brooke about about your new book that you have blessed us all with and um, where we can find it and what it's all about.
1: Yes, I have read your book Care, which is your new book that was released, oh, what, last week? Yeah. Yeah, last yeah. week. So it is a beautiful book and I'm holding it in my hands to show you that, like, I just want to rub it on my face. <laughs> it's just it's right. getting so much love for, like, the tactile cover. <laughs> yeah, it's just beautiful. Um, so I actually read it really, really quickly because we had this interview coming up and I was like, right, I've got to get through this book because I don't want to be one of those interviewers who goes, "Now I haven't read your book, but... And I, like, I'm like i quite cynical about self-help books and I also am a bit arrogant in that I often read them and go, yeah, I already know that and because Tara and I cover all of this stuff all the time sort of thing. But I read your book and I was like, I realised how much I was relearning what I should have already known and maybe had known somewhere in me but it, all of a sudden I knew it in another level of me, <laughs> which is like really hard to describe. So like I, I, it was just... I got a whole lot of new meaning out of stuff that I thought I already knew. So that was one of the things I loved about this book in that I kind of thought, okay, I'll probably know some of these concepts already and I do and you've said it yourself. It is a sort of a simple thing that we do all kind of know this deep in ourselves but the way you've written it, like – you, you had me. This is the. This is what the book has already done for me, right? So, like last night, I still had a few chapters to read, and I'm, I've been trying to. Like, I had three clients on Friday, so I'm like, no time to read. So I'm like, okay, I'll be up late reading this on Friday night to finish off the last few chapters. And I was in my bedroom, in my jammies, doing lunges and squats while i read this book right <laughs> tara's like why but once she reads the book she'll know exactly. she'll get to the that point she'll get to that chapter and she'll go that's why rebecca was oh. doing squats in her jammies <laughs> in the bedroom <laughs> so it really it inspired me to sort of you know take action like virtually immediately while well, i was Literally, while I was reading the book, I was taking action on on some of these things. And then, you know, laying in bed and listening to my heart beating and, and thinking about those kinds of things, all these things that, you know, I'd forgotten to notice, you know, were I was reminded by your book. And I really, so thank you for that. I really love being reminded about, you know, all of this stuff that I'd forgotten to notice anymore. And I loved your poetry. I loved the poetry. So that was your your gift of your making um, to us, which I thought was quite wonderful. I'm not a poetry person. I kind of will start reading like, the first few verses of a poem, and then I'll be like, eh, hey, nah, it's too hard, and I'll just skip over it. But yours just, like, drew me in and were wonderful – and I'm going to go and read them again because the last few in the book I did have to skip over because I'm like, I need to get this book finished. So I'm going to go back to those and relish that poetry a little bit more. So so can you give our listeners and Tara a little bit of a rundown about this book, Care, and, and how it came about for you? Mm.
2: Yeah, first, though, thank you. That was, that was really kind of you <laughs> to share all of that. Um And the poetry, just as an aside, I was so nervous to share that because that is not my normal jam at all. But as you say, one of the chapters is about making and the benefits of making and the benefits of letting go of whether the stuff that you create is any good. So I'm like, well, that's a You know, that's an invitation to me to get uncomfortable and. I don't know if they're any good or not, but I'm going to stick them in there and see. And I said to my publisher and my editor, I'm like, please tell me if they suck. Like, please, (laughs) you're not going to hurt my feelings. You'll hurt my feelings way more if they are terrible and you let them go out into the world. They're
1: like, no, they don't suck. Okay. No, they definitely don't suck. They're they're really good. I I loved them. I found them really good. I I found them really touching too. Yeah. I just loved writing them.
2: You know, I feel like. It was such a raw year, though, to kind of answer your question. Um, last year, you know, we had Black like, summer bushfires and then we had floods where I live after the fires and then we had COVID and more floods. It's just been last year I felt probably like so many people um, completely and utterly burnt out, you know, come sort of April, May. And I had already started working on what the book was going to be, which was a little bit more of a cynical investigation into, like, the self-care industry because mm. a bit like you, like, I um, I had a, uh, you know, I, I really found myself struggling to identify with a lot of what passes as self-care and self-help now because, A, it puts so much pressure on individuals to, like, fix issues that aren't their making. You know, they're not of their making. The fact that so many people are struggling under... Absurd, absurd amounts of pressure and, um, you know, workplace pressure and financial pressure and childcare pressure, um, you know, none of that is their fault and it kind of frustrates me that self-help or self-care is like, come on, you fix it. Like you're a, you're a big girl, you fix it. Um, so I, was, I started out with that as, as sort of my, my direction and as I found myself burnt out, I realised that for me it was because I had slipped into like this – I recognise that care is like on a spectrum, Um, you know, and at one end you have self-care or like the self-care that is sold to us now Um, and on the other end you have big care, which is what last year looked like for me, which was, you know, global collective issues and upheaval and, you know, these huge overwhelming problems – that as an individual I want to care about and I do care about, but they feel so out of reach in terms of, you know, the impact that I can have. And, you know, so when I first burnt out, I dove headfirst into self-care. And to a certain extent, it helped, you know. Um I would do things like some yoga and I would uh you know do breathing exercises and journaling and, and those kinds of things. And they helped. But there was this whole middle of the spectrum that was going completely uh, unacknowledged. And that was, you know, the small acts of care, be them self-focused or other focused, that had an enormous impact on, you know, mental health, well-being, relationships, community, that kind of stuff. So that's really where I landed when I, I, because I had to rewrite the book, that's where I landed with the second draft was this idea of small care care and i just wanted to experiment with it because i was struggling and i thought this is the book that i need to read so it's the book i'm going to write and you know so i dove into the research and i dove into trying stuff out and what i found is exactly what you said so many of the ideas they're not new You're like these aren't these aren't brand new solutions that i've kind of created these are things that on some fundamental level we all know are good for us we all know are Um, vital I think for living well and yet it's not where we put our time and energy you know so it was really an invitation for me to explore what that looked like and then to see what the impact was and what I saw was that the impact wasn't just personal it ended up changing everything kind of like what I was saying earlier about decluttering how it changed my relationships and you know the ripple of that these things are kind of similar in that way they're just far more accessible Mm. Um, you know, which was the other key for me. It's like what things can I research, can I explore, can I experiment, experiment with that are accessible to everybody in some form regardless of their circumstances? Mm. Um, and in that way it's not like the traditional or the, the typical ideas of self-care that we have.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing that I loved is you've you've even – spelled it out for us in try this you know and and do this and there is a list of things and it's like and for, for people like me who might get overwhelmed with thinking about those kinds of things or for people like Tara who wants to do everything properly there is a <laughs> list there that says don't do it properly do this you know and it gives you permission to experiment and and do all this and they are things that I mean, there there are some things that not everybody can do which you've been very clear on it's like well obviously Standing up more isn't going to suit somebody who has to be seated in a wheelchair, but a lot of them are accessible, you know. And there are things that people who can't stand up more can absolutely do in in your book. So there's lots, you know, there's things that that um, that everybody can do, and they're accessible to to all of us in in some way. And no matter how small our lives are and the, and the space we take up, there's there's something that we can we can do in these. And so I have to we have to give you credit because you kind of been saying, oh, it's everyone. Everyone knows all this already. It's sort of something we already know. But not only did you remind us of what those things are, but you framed them in a way that made them really clear. And the whole concept of big care versus small care and even discarding self-care, because once you – I think once you deal with small care, self-care is irrelevant. Um, So we can look at, like, the the big care and then the small care. And just just framing it like that, it's like, oh, okay, I can do this. Like, I can – I can do this this is like completely accessible to me and just the and then breaking it down um so you've got like nine different types of small key which you've broken down into the chapters and you've, you've given everyone some examples and i'm not going to spoil it and go through all of what those are we've already touched on a couple of them um did you this is as a writer like when i look back on book i always think of things to add later have you discovered any other categories or is something popped up when you've gone huh that could have been a category of of small care or has it not really popped up yet?
2: That's a really good question, actually. I think um, not so much a new category, but the importance of one of the categories that I did write about. Mm. uh, And that's based on... So my dad um, has been in the ICU for eight weeks um, and is currently still there. So I'm in this period of massive... Um, tilting, You know, I talk about tilting rather than balancing and I'm like mega tilting into whatever it is that needs my attention in that moment, which means I'm letting go of everything else. So that means that, like, my floors are a mess. They haven't been mopped. You know, there's laundry piling up. Like, it fine, whatever. You know, I'm talking to you guys and I'm all in talking to you and then when I finish talking to you, I'm going to tilt into spending time with my family and I'll probably tilt at some point into... Mopping the floors, I suppose, (laughs) 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 maybe (laughs) at some stage, Uh, you know, so that's what life looks like for me at the moment. And what I have recognized as a result of the book is that the final chapter, which is all about rest, uh, sorry, all about healing is so much more important than I even gave it credit for, particularly in the times where we feel like we don't have the space for it. So I have been doing things that on paper I don't have time to do like getting up and journaling for 15 minutes in the morning and not viewing that as I probably used to as something that's a little bit self-indulgent when there's so much serious stuff going on, you know, but as something that is vital, you know, and even um, taking the extra time to in, like, sit and drink my coffee near the fireplace in the morning or to light the fire and use that as a ritual of, uh, you know, presence and and that dropping in that I was talking about before. So I've really recognized how important healing is um, and how if we don't give it the time and the space that it needs in the moment, it will become a massive requirement, like a non-negotiable really quickly. Mm. So, you know, I feel like I've navigated the last eight weeks much better than the book of even two years ago would have been able to do. And that is from writing the book. Mm. You know? So I really genuinely did write the book that I needed
1: yeah. to read. because it has yeah. and it has helped with the healing. Yeah, and, it has. And that, I like that that point about the healing is I kind of – the healing one for me is I don't really – in the stage that i'm in at the moment don't feel like i need a great deal of healing and so i sort of read it well oh, yeah yeah that's nice but then, just then, when you started talking about that, I realized that that chapter is actually really important for me to address as a preventative measure as well. Yes. And not just, so it's like pre healing. Yeah. Um, and, and that, so I think, you know, that's just as you said, that I went, I'm definitely going to revisit that. I mean, I'm definitely revisiting that chapter anyway, because I skipped over what looks like an awesome poem. So I know I'm going back into that. But um, that, I think, revisiting that chapter as well with that new lens of, you know, just, um, looking after myself. So I don't need to do some serious healing later, perhaps, or if I do need to do some serious healing, um, I, I kind of know how, or I'm I'm prepared for that, or I'm, I'm in a place where I'm, I'm ready for that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, thank you. That just sort of occurred to me. Um, so, that sort of leads me, I guess, because that was one of the c- categories I thought was not as applicable to me. But then there were a couple of categories I noticed that I was really uncomfortable with, and I know you kind of were as well. Um, you can, you've actually written it in the book that one of them made you a bit nervous to write. And I I agreed with you on that one. Um, so my, for me, I found play, like, that one the hardest. I read it, I didn't find it the hardest to understand, like, Totally makes sense. I'm like reading and I'm going, yep, Brooke, yep. Oh, oh my god, yes, totally. So I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, but then I'm then I'm thinking about me doing that, and it's like, yeah, I don't know. Like play just is is difficult for me. And I remember one time, I I walked out of a room and I did like a silly. Walk or a silly flick, or I just did something stupid as I walked out of the room, and I heard Mick make a sound, and I turned around, and he was like astounded. He laugh because it was silly and funny, but he said, "You don't do silly things like that." And I went, "I don't. I don't do silly. I don't do things like that. um You know, I'll hear a song in the supermarket, and my like my body wants to move to it, and then my brain goes." Don't do that. People will stare at you, you know. And so I found the play one. I think that is going to be the hardest one for me to make changes in my life. And mm. I think the the nature one is the easiest because I already do a lot of that. Um, I think Tara will find the rest one, the hardest. Um, the idleness experiment, and I'm not going to give it away, but the one where you squirmed a lot. That one, wriggled, wriggled around a lot, that experiment. And again, Tara's like, I have to do this book so I can read what they're Mm. talking about. Um, But I think she, I would love to see her try and do that. That would be very funny to watch and to talk about later on. (laughs) Tara's face is like, "Mm, Mm." So I love, I like doing this to her. I'm just torturing her. Um, And I think she would find movement and making would be her easy ones. Uh, So for you, what's the... I mean, you kind of already answered this, but what would be your easiest and which one did you struggle with the most or do you struggle to implement the changes in? Yeah, I definitely struggled with play the Mm. most. Um, I'm – and, you know, it caused me to really
2: question the stories that I had – Told myself for ages about the kind of person that I am you know I'm like the earnest one I'm the serious one I'm sarcastic but I don't think I'm necessarily playful <laughs> like Ben is the playful one you know he's the one yeah, who would same jump in our the, family yeah. yeah they do the and stupid
1: I, things the funny things.
2: exactly jump on the trampoline you know tickle fights whatever and I, I, I kind of go rigid um, and it's learning how to recognize that and to a, be okay with it, because the thing I discovered when I was writing that chapter is that even the like the neuroscientists who study play, and there is a lot of them, and the like the body of research around play and the benefits that it offers is phenomenal. Like it blew my mind as I was hmm. as I was preparing to write that chapter. Uh, but even the, the experts cannot. They cannot come to a consensus on what constitutes play. Like there is no way that you can identify the common traits of play because play looks different to everybody. Hmm. You know, what, like what my husband pl- finds playful, I, I don't. Um, and similarly, the things that I've discovered that I find playful, he wouldn't necessarily think of in that same way. The only common thread between all of the definitions of play are that it's purposeless. Mm. So it has no use. So I used to berate myself when I would play with my kids and they would have so much fun. You know, mum, can we play this? Can we do that? Can we do this? Um, and I'd do it, but at no point did it feel like light to me, you know. And it I say in the book, like, parenting gods forgive me, but mm. it felt like a chore. Mm. And that's because it was. Like I was doing it for a purpose, which is, to benefit the kids, you know, to benefit their development, to benefit our relationships, to benefit their ability to, you know, to tap into their own imaginations, um, to benefit their, like, hand-eye coordination.
1: Hmm. None to stop of them that is... whinging at you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's also a purpose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to stop the sound. Yes, fi- yeah. fine, I yes, will go yes. and play with you. Yes. <laughs> Just shush.
2: <laughs> you know, and so I realised that all of that had purpose so none of that was play for me. Hmm. And that, that was kind of quite validating. And then I got to think about the things that I like to do that have no purpose. And essentially what I discovered is that I am a really playful person. It just doesn't look the way that, again, we're told like a mother should be playful in this way, Hmm. Um, you know. So I had this really interesting conversation with my brother-in-law at a water park one morning, you know, we'd taken our kids and we were both sort of standing there talking about how neither of us feels particularly playful. And then I realised afterwards that we were lining up to go on a water slide while having this conversation. And our kids, they weren't with us. Like they didn't need us to be on that water slide. So he and I were lining up to slide down on our bums through a fibreglass tube full of water for literally no purpose other than it was fun.
1: And it would give you a massive wedgie. Exactly, exactly, (laughs) which is the best part. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, and, so, and yeah. I, I love that, that like you said, when, it's, when it can't be play, if there's a purpose to it, it becomes more of a chore then, yeah.
2: Yeah, so that's definitely the one that I struggle with and I, it's been kind of fun to unpack what play can look like for me and that might be something like, um, you know, play and making, I think, have a lot of mm. crossover for a lot of people. So if you're making something for no reason other than it feels nice, other than it's enjoyable, other than you like you like the rhythm that it puts you in, um, that's play, you mm. know, really relaxing our ideas around play and fun. Um, but also finding things that make you laugh. I think that's something that I have certainly tried to adopt more of because if I'm not feeling particularly playful, watching something or listening, I listen to a lot of comedy podca- podcasts and they are – like they give you a boost, mm. you know, and, and I find that playful as well, because I'm certainly not learning anything as I listen to them, but I'm laughing a
1: lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I love the crossover between some of these categories as well. Like you said, you know, sometimes the the play and the making kind of have a bit of a crossover. Mm. Um, but the thing, yeah, the thing with it, with it is we also have to, you know, look more inwards than outwards. And... And, like, you know, in the supermarket, if there's a song I like, I should jig along to it down the aisle, like, without worrying what people think, and I should just do that, you know, because there's no reason to do it other than I have this inner urge to do so, this urge to move, you know, or to sing along to it or something like that. So it would be, you know, torturous for those around me, but, you know, I would be quite, you know, happy to do so. The reality is
0: people would probably see you and smile, and think, exactly. I wish and I wish had could the guts do it to do that. They wouldn't mm, be looking yeah. at you going, that lady's crazy. Weirdo. They'd be like, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe a few of them, depending on your dancing <laughs> style, Beck. Um, yeah,
1: well, that's right. I cannot dance.
0: But um, but most yes, people you you would probably move, be envious that, that they didn't have the guts to do it, or it would just give them a boost. You know, when you see those lovely things happen in your life and you think, how cool is that? I'm glad I saw that. They'd probably just think the same. I think yeah. we've got a uh, experiment coming up, Beck.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> but you just touched on something that's in the book, Tara, about these little moments. Um, and there were a couple of, of things during this. Uh, one of them is in um, connection. And I was actually reminded of something that I did. I had stopped at McDonald's to go to the toilet between clients recently, and I also... I had to buy something, of course, but only because I was going to the toilet. then not because I actually like food. No. <laughs> um, so I stopped at McDonald's. Anyway, I well, this woman who had like handfuls of stuff had started to open the door and she kind of was opening it for me, which I thought was really weird. So she's pushing it open towards me. So I grabbed hold of it and then I put my foot down to wedge it open because there were other people behind her. And she... Like she goes, you got it, and I said, yep. And she let go, and she's like, because she let go of her elbow, and then she said, thank you. And then the other three people behind her all looked at me in the eye and went, thanks so much, thanks so much, thank you. And it was like a, not just a thanks; it was looked me in the eye, said thank you, like we really appreciate you standing there while all four of us file out the door. And, and I was like, you're welcome, you know. And I felt great. And it's those little moments you know, with, with strangers as well that we can just, like that might, that kind of changed my day a little bit, could have changed their day as well. Like they could have invo- in it really liked saying thank you in that way, in that genuine way and it might have made them feel good about themselves. And um, so, you know, maybe dancing in the supermarket, oh, might actually make somebody's day better <laughs> as well as my own.
2: Yeah, and I, I, that's what I love about those little moments of um, vulnerability and connection. Mm. So it takes a little bit of vulnerability oh, to yeah, yeah. sing in the supermarket, and I've challenged myself to do that recently, kind of over mm. the last six months. And I do, I ca- I cannot sing, like <laughs> I really, really cannot sing, and I don't care. You know, I'll, I'll just kind of be singing the words softly to myself, and people see and they smile. Mm. You know, probably also laugh, but that's fine. You know, Doesn't and I matter. think that. No, I think that they those tiny little kind of glimpses into our shared humanity. Mm. You know, like saying thank you and looking someone in the eye when you do it and meaning it. They have ripples that reach out way further than we could ever anticipate. Um, and there's there's a lot of research in the the kindness chapter actually that sort of talks about that that. Kindness is something that multiplies, you know, it, it, so the person doing the kindness, you know, you held the door, you get um, a benefit, your, your brain chemicals change and you get what's called a helper's high by doing something kind for somebody. The person that you do it for also gets that virtually the same brain chemistry change that Leaves them feeling more connected, it leaves them feeling happier. it reduces their stress levels, their cortisol levels. Um, but anyone who saw you do that also gets the same uh, boost in their brain chemistry, and what that does it means that we are far more likely to then go ahead in our day and do something kind for another person, you know whether it 's holding the door open, whether it is taking a coffee to your coworker or, or sitting with your kids for that extra five minutes when they want to talk to you about a problem that they're having at school uh, and it is this continuous ripple because then when you do that 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 next kind thing that impacts at least another two people and it's like this exponential growth of kindness hmm. um, all because you're prepared to like do something that took no extra time hmm. you know and to have that shared moment of humanity. Um so for me, that's like where the world-changing power of this stuff, this really simple stuff lies. It's in how far away from us it can kind of ripple. Mm.
0: One thing and that's I, what, I, sorry, oh, Beck, I was going to say one thing I would add to that is the power or the, the joy that comes from doing something without sharing it either because yes. I feel like people have <laughs> stopped just being kind for the sake of being kind. And now they have to signal to the world via their social media that they're being kind. So people don't just buy a coffee for the homeless guy in the corner anymore. They buy a coffee and then film themselves giving the coffee to the homeless guy. And it's like you're missing the point, people. That's The joy is not found in that, in how many likes you get from doing that. The joy is found in the action. And, in fact... Yeah the less people that see you, the greater you'll probably feel because you have just done it for him and for you rather than for public display. And I feel like there's a big disconnect there with what, that people are being kind but they're so big on capturing the kindness to share and promote or whatever rather Mm. than just being present in that moment and getting the sensation of how good it feels to do something.
2: Yeah, I agree and particularly when people are being filmed, you know, unbeknownst to them as well, mm. like it does the opposite of what mm. the person doing the kindness, probably with all good intention, had thought they were going to do. It dehumanises people, you know, if you're filming the person who you're giving the coffee to without their permission, like that that to me is problematic and it shows that possibly your intent wasn't as altruistic as, mm-hmm. you know, you'd like people to think, Um it's, yeah, it's a really interesting kind of conundrum, I guess, and it's it speaks to the commercialization, the commodi- commodification of all good things mm. in our society, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Like how people have discovered a way to commodify kindness is beyond me, but I, I do think that there is certainly some of that happening. Um, mm. And I guess the question is, You know, people like I the one I immediately thought of is the good news movement on Instagram. Like I follow them. It's really heartwarming. mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the things that they share are not necessarily filmed by someone who's looking to increase their own profile. Um, But whenever there is, there's a lot of pushback on that. And I think that people are aware of, you know, intent. I I hope people are aware of intent. Um, And even if they're not, like we are right? And we're having this conversation and we know the difference in doing something just because it's a nice thing to do, just because you want to, or, you know, just because you think that person looks like they need some help crossing the road or whatever it might be. Um, And the more I think we see that out in the world with people not looking for any recognition for it, I think the more it normalizes that behavior too. Um, Yeah. So I guess maybe there is an unseen ripple from that you know, the Instagram video of someone doing something nice that inspires people. It's just that we don't get to see it, maybe. Mm, That's mm. me being optimistic about it.
1: I think both things are true. I think both can be true. There can be that ripple where it does have a good effect, but then also it could have been better if perhaps it was done in a different way. So, yeah, I think both things can be true. So here's a a vulnerable question a little bit for you, Brooke, or it's my vulnerability a little bit, um, because I don't know if I'll cry when I say this (laughs) or not. We'll find out i love a good surprise because um, I actually cried reading this book and I came close a few other times and I don't remember which chapter it was and it might be the awe one but like I was sitting in bed with my cup of tea and my loud swallowing had obviously not affected me because he was asleep and when you – there was a bit about touching somebody's chest and, mm. and I almost reached down to touch his chest and I thought, oh, well, I'll wake him up if I do that because, you know, cold hands, bare chest – Warm bed, no fun at all, and so I just, I just instead of like doing that, I just sat and watched him for a while and watched him snoring, breathing. He was snoring nice and quietly then, um but I just watched him doing that, and I just did that for ages. Like I do, like, I felt like ages, probably thirty seconds or something, but it felt like a, an eternity. And I just watched him, and I got really emotional, and I I started to cry because I was thinking about the things that that you'd been writing about in that chapter, and um, so. Yeah, so that it sort of—I got quite emotional. Um, did you get emotional writing this book? Did you have moments where you just sat and cried, or <laughs> you did? Oh
2: my goodness, yes! <laughs> I went through the entire spectrum of
1: emotions writing
2: this book. Um, but yeah, there were moments where, um, where I particularly that part of the or chapter that you're referencing, where mm. you know. Where I really encourage people to look for the tiny experiences of awe, um, you know, in their everyday life because we can't always go stargazing or, you know, go to Uluru or something like that. Yeah, or the Grand Canyon, yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's thinking about those virtually invisible things that happen every second of every hour of every day of our lives that keep us alive, you know. Um, And writing that was really. Um, emotional and like bittersweet because it did what I asked it to do you know it really drew my attention to the the wonder of being alive you know of these trillions of cells that add up to being a human being and that human being can love other human beings and you know um, create other human beings and it's it's it it blew my mind and then to bring it back down to something as simple as the breath and how everyone has a particular number of breaths that make up their life, you know? Um, so I think that, that kind of quantifying those very, um, common sort of things, it helped me to, to draw my eye to how precious it all is, you know, not not to sound too earnest, but it really did impact me. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, but I went through the entire gamut of emotions um, writing this book. <laughs> and that's kind of how I write, to be to be honest. I I write with pen and paper and I don't censor it. I just see what comes and I worry about, you know, about what I'm going to let through and what, what to pull out later. Mm. Uh, and I think that's how I end up with so much of the, the emotion that I do. I don't know how to write any other way, so maybe mm. I'm wrong. But
1: yeah, you do have you. You are a deep feeler. You feel deeply and strongly, and a, a lot. Like you just and this book has. <laughs> it's just so. I think that's the. It's yeah. It's full of feeling. It's it's um and it's all like some of them are scary feelings, but none of them are bad feelings. Like some of them are yeah a little bit scary or a little bit big, um, mm-hmm. but. They're wonderful uh, at the same time, and and that was my favorite chapter. That or chapter, I am going to read that over and over again. Like it was my favorite chapter, and I don't struggle with that in my day to day. That that wouldn't be the hardest chapter for me to make some change in, but it's definitely one I want to do mm. like do more of. And just, just those in those tiny little moments of, of yeah, just again, just like watching that watching him breathe and sleep, just that those little those tiny little things that you know, like wow, and and not just. His body is moving, but this is this is someone that, you know, I've I've spent twenty-five years of my life with, and and you just look at them and you don't see them. You know, when you've yes. spent twenty-five years with someone, you don't see them anymore. Like you you look at them, you know they're that round, they're so familiar that they're it's like looking at your own face, which you, mm-hmm. you just don't notice anymore. And so when to, to actually consciously stare and look and take in his face and how it's changed in twenty-five years, and all those kinds of things, yeah, I just Started crying, <laughs> and it was just—it was lovely. So those are the things that I do want to do a little bit more of. Those those little noticing things. So,
2: yeah, it's just so easy to take to take that for granted, mm. you know. And I think anything that we can do that draws our attention to what we do have and who we have, mm. and you know what they mean to us, is really powerful because that again can change the way you show up for each other, even if it's just in like the smallest little way, like having that little extra. Uh, you know, softness in a conversation mm. or offering the tiniest of kindnesses, whatever it might be, you know, it's it really does have an impact um, and, yeah, I, I love that chapter. I loved mm. writing that chapter.
1: Yeah, that was my favourite too. It's definitely the winner.
0: I have one question for you, Brooke, about care and I forgive me if you have addressed this in the book, Um, but do you think our resources of like, personally, our resources of care are finite? So if we are consumed with caring big and caring about the pandemic or, um, global warming and climate change, if we're consumed with human rights, do you think we have reduced capacity for caring for our neighbour or, um caring for the the people in our community and caring for ourselves do you believe that we can ex- expend those resources on the big care and and have less to give personally
2: yeah I do in you know in a word I really do because um, it it's most likely not the same for everybody but I, for me that was where I ended up last year mm-hmm. was just consumed with caring deeply about you know, all the massive issues that face us as a collective, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and I would scroll through endless news websites and I would keep on top of all of the COVID conferences and, uh, you know, really surround myself with all of that information. And that was driven by a desire to be informed, you know, and I want to be informed because I want to be a good citizen and I want to be a good citizen because I believe the, you know, the world can change and it can be better for all of us. Um, But, when I was completely consumed with all of those big cares, there was so much I neglected. Like when I'm, when I'm all in on that, that means I'm not with my kids. I'm not present with them. I'm not thinking about their needs. I'm certainly not thinking about my own needs. And they are needs. You know, they're not nice to haves. It's sort of caring for ourselves, kindness, connection, um, you know, spending time outside, eating well. That, like they are needs mm-hmm. that we all have and I was not giving any of them time or attention Um, and I guess the the optimistic part that I discovered throughout my own experiments was as I temporarily turned away from all of those big those big scary issues um, and that felt I felt like I was you know wussing out I felt like I was failing I felt like I was kind of giving up and letting someone else deal with it but I knew it was temporary uh, and I turned all the way into the stuff that I've written about in the book. Not only did I feel cared for in myself, which meant that I was able to show up for my kids and my husband and my community, but it also gave me such a surplus of, you know, of care that I can once again activate myself in these things that I care about. Um, but I do think the danger is, particularly of social media and, uh, you know, clicktivism and, um looking at everyone's feeds and finding so many things to care about. Like we can't be activists in every issue that faces the world. Mm -hmm. You know, we just can't. And I think that we're really uncomfortable with that because so many of them are worth our time and our attention. Uh, So it's also making peace with that and recognising that you're not going to act in uh, opposition to those things that you think are important. But sometimes you're not going to be the person leading the charge. Um, and that that has been something that I have struggled with as I like to think of myself as someone who can help instigate change, uh, but we can't instigate change everywhere mm. and still be uh, you know well-rounded and still have enough care for ourselves and the people closest to us.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. I love that answer. Well, Brooke, thank you so much. You have really indulged us with a whole plethora of your time and a whole lot of wisdom. I'm sure so many listeners are going to want to get their hands on your new book. Whereabouts can we find it? Where's the best place to go looking? Uh,
2: so if you're in Australia and New Zealand, uh, any bookshop should certainly have a copy of it. And if not, ask them to get it in. <laughs> um, but if you're elsewhere, uh, Book Depository does have it and they offer free worldwide shipping. So anyone um, around the world can can grab a copy that way. You can go to my website as well, slowyourhome.com, and I'll have links to all of those places um, online.
0: Perfect. And we will have links to your podcast and your website um, and Book Depository as well. We'll have all of that on our show notes to make it easy for people to get a hold of. Thank you so much for your time. And say oh. hi to Fred. <laughs> will.
2: Uh, fi- yeah, funny story. I think Fred's a Franny, and <laughs> Franny's had a lot of babies. <laughs> but I will say a lot of Franny. Um,
0: yeah, thank you. Thank this you.
2: was really such a lovely conversation. You both asked such great questions.
1: Oh. oh, thank you. It was a pleasure to have you. We knew we would. Ha- we knew we would have good answers. That was that was sort <laughs> of a given. So uh, yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. We'd love it if you'd leave a review or tell all your friends about us so that they too can be uncluttered. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us at beuncluttered.com.au or on social media or on our own websites at clearspace.net.au and basklifecoaching.com.